Hi, folks. This is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Hello, Nexus friends. Uh, welcome to a re-record of Sunday morning's sermon. Um, since we've been back at the Conrad Center, it's been so good, uh, but we haven't quite figured out uh, the recording of sermons there yet. We'll fix that soon. So this is a re-recording of a sermon I gave on Sunday entitled, When You Are Engulfed in Flames, A Brief History of Hell and Three Ways to Get There. So always tricky talking about hell. Let's jump in, though, and... Um, this summer, you know, I was on a family trip, of course, and I was driving one day. The kids are in the back seat when the kids uttered in unison, Dad, are you a hero? Such a kind question to explain how I ended up in this situation, though I need to back up. You see, we had been hiking in Zion National Park, and we had just finished a hike doing the Narrows, a beautiful hike in the park. And when we got back to the visitor center parking lot, I received a text message, an emergency alert on my phone saying, evacuate the park immediately or get to higher ground. Storms are coming in, flash flood warning. Now, we were in uh, the parking lot, like I said, so I wasn't too panicked here. Uh, so we sat in the car and waited out as a, a brief but quite powerful storm passed by. Thunder, lightning, lots of rain. Very exciting. Glad we weren't on a hike uh, at that point. But after the storm subsided, we were exiting, heading back to where we were staying for the night. And as I'm driving down this two-lane highway, I notice in the distance off to my left, a plume of smoke, a thin plume of smoke rising to the air. And I begin to study and focus on this. Is this a campsite? Is this a campfire? And what I can tell as I start to get closer is this is no campfire at all. This is off in some brush on some hill, completely uninhabited. It would seem as if lightning had come through, struck in that particular region and started a fire. Now, this was a big wildfire summer, so that was fresh on my mind. I didn't want to be party to another wildfire getting out of control here in North America. And just as I was thinking about calling in that one, we came around our bend, and on the right side of me, the entire top of, a, of an untamed hill was blazing in fire. A good 20 square meters were on fire on top of this hill, and I immediately said to my kids, because I... I don't want to text or look things up on my phone while I'm driving. I said, Google Utah wildfire hotline. And so they did that. And then when they found the number, I called and reported to them, hey, I'm seeing two wildfires that have just begun just outside of Zion National Park. I told them where I was. They thanked me profusely and said crews would be right out uh, to take a look and to extinguish these flames. And as I hung up, that's when the question from my kids rang out. Dad, are you a hero? And I said, well, I don't know about that, kids. You know, I, I don't know if I'm so much a hero just doing what anyone would do for the sake of humanity, saving folks from wildfires. It's all just in a day's work. But 
the idea of wildfires, particularly this summer, I think was on everyone's mind. No matter where you were in North America, it seemed as though at least there were one or two days when all of us were kind of covered in smoke here. And I first began thinking more deeply about wildfires when our family took a summer trip to Banff in the summer of 2021. And that summer was another bad summer for wildfire. And everywhere we went on that trip, Lake Louise, Moraine Lake, every, every hike we went on, there was a haze of smoke hanging in the air from wildfires kilometers away. And it affected everything. You know, 2023 was the worst year on record for Canada for wildfires. And there's been some famous ones. I think many of us remember just a few years ago in June 2021, the Riverside Hamlet of Lytton, British Columbia. It broke their heat record for Canada three days in a row. It topped out at 49 degrees Celsius, which sounds like an arbitrary number. But this summer I was in Death Valley, which always has hot temperatures. And while we were visiting, it was 49 degrees Celsius. And I, I can't even explain to you how hot that feels walking around in. It's just like a blow dryer in your face. It's an oppressive heat. And Lighten for three days had temperatures scorching at 49 degrees Celsius. And on the fourth day, we'll all remember a wind-driven wildfire burned the town to the ground in a half an hour. One of Canada's most infamous wildfires was the Fort McMurray fire, right? That started on May 1st, 2016. It wouldn't be extinguished until August 2nd, 2017. That's 15 months this fire burned. And a wildfire burning that long is actually quite common. But what caught our national attention about this fire is that it would ravage the small city of Fort McMurray. It started on May 1st, 2016, and unexpectedly, the fire rushed towards the city. And on May 3rd, 2016, 94,000 people had to evacuate the city. That exodus marked the largest and most rapid displacement of people due to fire in North American history. Now, in terms of fire intensity, wildfire experts, they assess fire by the amount of power a fire gives off per meter of fire line. So a 1,000 kilowatt per meter fire can be effectively managed by a ground crew, but the moment it jumps over 2,000 kilowatts per meter, trouble is brewing at 4,000 kilowatts per meter. It's too dangerous for ground crews. And by the time a fire intensifies to over 10,000 kilowatts per meter, you have on your hands an out of control wildfire and even air bombardments have little effect on it at that intensity. Now, to try to capture what I mean by 10,000 kilowatts per meter of fire, we're talking about, think of it this way, 10,000 space heaters worth of energy per meter of fire. Now, keeping in mind that a fire intensity of 10,000 kilowatts per meter represents an uncontainable fire, consider this. The Fort McMurray fire alone was regularly registering 100,000 kilowatts per meter of fire. And that's not unusual for wildfires these days. In fact, firefighters helpless to do anything at the height of this fire, they were regularly recording on their homes, watching entire homes 
burnt and reduced entirely to the rubble of their foundation in just three minutes, 180 seconds from the time a fire touched a home in Fort McMurray until nothing more remained than the foundation. Three minutes. The hottest fire on record I can find, at least in Canada, was 2001's Chisholm Fire, also in Alberta. And at its height, it was generating 225,000 kilowatts of energy per meter. And this fire was miles wide. If you're having trouble imagining what a quarter of a million space heaters compressed into the length of a yardstick means, you can think of it this way. During its seven-run peak, uh, it was calculated to be that of 17 one-megaton hydrogen bombs or about four Hiroshima bombs per minute. And beyond, of course, the obvious financial cost these wildfires take on us, the environmental cost is absolutely extraordinary. The carbon dioxide generated by 21st century wildfires, it exceeds the annual CO2 output of many states, even countries. I mean, to put this into perspective, the CO2 reduction that the world experienced because of the COVID pandemic lockdowns in 2020, it was more than compensated for by the Australian bushfires of 2020 alone. John Vallant, he is a national Canadian treasure, a gift of a writer. He says this in his book, Fire Weather. Fire has no heart, no soul, and no concern for the damage it does or who it harms. Its focus is solely on sustaining itself and spreading as broadly as possible, wherever possible. In the end, the geologic record of our time will show that it is we who serve fire, who enabled it to burn more broadly and brightly than it ever has before. Fire, thus far, has mastered us. We humans have long been fascinated by fire, and for good reason. Control, human control of fire, has been a driving and predominant technological force, from weapons and warfare to transportation. But when we lose control of fire... It is nothing more than a consuming force, always hungry, always devouring, always destroying. And from ancient times through to today, fire and flames evoke within us a measure of awe and tangible fear. The thought of something burning, be it our home or the woods or even our bodies, is very unpleasant to think about. And given our human fascination and fear of fire, it's probably no accident that scripture and Jesus in particular often employs fire imagery with what we often assume to be negative connotations like judgment. And this is our final week at Nexus exploring the tensions we experience with God. And so I thought there'd be no better place to explore in terms of tensions with God um, then why hell and the threat of divine torture have left many of us shaken and uneasy about the God we find in Scripture. So what I want to do to start is give you a brief history of hell. Now, we've already learned in other uh, teachings in this series that a, lost is lot in, is, a lot is lost in translation when it comes to Scripture stories. Well, hell is no exception. In fact, when we read about hell in scripture, there are a number of ideas at play. So let's briefly head back in time. This is a brief history of hell. So let's begin with Sheol. 
Our first idea of hell comes from the Old Testament, but its idea of hell has little to do with how we have come to understand it. Like there's virtually, this is surprising, virtually no afterlife theology found in the Old Testament. For the Hebrews, death was Sheol, the grave, the underworld. It was the abode of the dead. And so hell in the Hebrew mind was simply Sheol, the realm of the dead. There was no heaven and hell, just Sheol. In fact, it wasn't about until 150 years before Jesus that the hope of resurrection afterlife took hold within certain sects of Judaism. And this is often lost on us because in the Gospels we read, right, of course, about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it can be confusing. What's the difference between the two? Well, one of the big differences was that the Pharisees did believe in resurrection. The Sadducees did not. But Sheol is the predominant thinking around hell in the Old Testament, and it simply means realm of the dead. Hades is the idea we get in the New Testament. The word Hades comes to replace Sheol, and it comes to us from Greek mythology, meaning the underworld. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says that Hades is neither heaven nor hell. It's almost nothing. So Hades, like Sheol, simply refers to the realm of the dead. And most English translations, maybe that they call it hell, maybe they say it's the grave, but that's the idea with Hades. And then you have Gehenna. This is another word that's translated as hell in the New Testament. And this was the term for a physical place, the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem. And this is the Psalm 23. This is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. This was an infamous site where children were sacrificed as burnt offerings upon the fiery idols of Moloch. It was a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and, and fire. And later, the Valley of Hinnom became the town uh, garbage dump, a place where the fires were never quenched, the maggots never died. And so the Valley of Hinnom becomes a primary source for imagining hellish judgment. Um, it might be akin, you know, we don't have exactly a place like this. The, the, the closest place you might think of might be, say, Windsor or Hamilton. I jest, if I have friends listening from Hinsor or Hamilton, I, I, I jest. But th this idea was, what's the worst possible place around Jerusalem? It would be the Valley of Hinnom, this garbage dump, always on fire, always smelling, always maggot infested. And when we know these three ideas of hell alone, it really changes the way we read Scripture. So for instance, in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of Hades, hell, Hades will not overcome it. The realm of the dead will not overcome it. But in Matthew 5, 29, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna, the city dump, the garbage dump. But even when we don't have direct language about hell, say Hades or Gehenna, Jesus certainly alludes to some kind of state of fire and judgment, some kind of hellish state that certainly doesn't seem like a place you want to be. Consider Matthew 13. He says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So even here, we're not given direct language about hell, but fire imagery. Language around hell in scripture and from Jesus, it's nuanced, it's complicated. It's not as simple as death followed by heaven or hell. There's symbolic language based on well, historically gruesome places. And there's language that describes the realm of death all mixed in. And so hell, whatever it is, certainly has connotations with death and certainly is a place no one wants to visit. But the idea of it being a literal place of fiery torture is more the imagination of medieval minds and cartoon caricatures than it is a biblical idea. Having said that, though, even still, as a community, we're always trying to take Jesus as seriously as possible. We can't just unilaterally ignore what Jesus has to say about hell because we've been given poor ideas about it. These warnings from Jesus are there for a good reason. We're to take them seriously. And so with a brief history of hell under our belts, I want to explore three ways you can find yourself in hell. Now, for me, for my upbringing, much of my life I was taught and had this simplistic equation about hell. Become a Christian, say a prayer, boom, you go to heaven. Fail to do that, off to hell, eternal torment you go. Growing up for me, everything was relatively simple, even if scary. Christians go to heaven, everyone else goes to hell. But Jesus and the New Testament writers were never that simplistic. And it turns out there's more than one way to find yourself in hell. There's actually three. Let's explore them. Here's the first path to hell. Path one, the path of wickedness. When Jesus does speak of an afterlife hell, most extensively, he does this in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the rich man and Lazarus, which I'm going to look at shortly. But he's making a point. It's the wicked who end up being condemned. And we need to recognize that Jesus uses the word wicked in a very conventional sense. The wicked are people who do wicked things. They inflict evil upon others. Jesus doesn't use the word as a technical term for all of humanity, except for people who have accepted Jesus into their hearts. Jesus does not use wicked as a synonym for non-Christians. And this idea that all non-Christians are wicked is really the result of some very arrogant theology. Jesus himself did not lay the claim that all non-Christians go to hell. Moreover, Jesus doesn't say that those who have done evil will be tortured eternally. All he says, and this is key, is that they will face a judgment of condemnation. And a lot of wrong thinking about hell is a result of reading into scripture texts things that aren't actually there. And so you could say this, Jesus' teaching on hell is basically this, if you refuse to love and follow the way of love, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what will happen is you will end up a lonely, tormented soul. Because if you insist on ignoring or evading what Jesus taught about loving our neighbors, being the criteria for our judgment, you will find yourself condemned after this life, lonely and tormented in this life. 
You know, Jean-Paul Sartre and his hilarious play, No Exit, Kristen and I saw it one year at Stratford. It was quite funny, but the premise is hell is other people. And while it makes for a great comedy, I think there's something truer here, and Dostoevsky gets to it uh, through his character, Elder Zosima, who asked this question. I asked myself, what is hell? And I answered thus, the suffering of being no longer able to love. That's hell. Hell is the inability to love other people. And I think this gets us closer to a better understanding of hell. It has something to do with a wrong reaction to the very essence of God, which is love. And so hell is not God's hatred. Rather, hell has something to do with refusing to receive and be transformed by the love of God. Second way to get yourself to hell is through the path of violence. You know, much of the hellish language we find in the Gospels is very clearly in reference to a coming destruction of Jerusalem. And at one point in Matthew 23, a clearly frustrated Jesus says this to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell, to Gehenna? More literal translation, serpents, brood of vipers, how may you escape the verdict of Hinnom's veil? How can you escape the verdict of finding yourself in a place where there's burning garbage hump? That's what Jesus is alluding to. And here's the thing. The reality is they didn't escape. Because in AD 70, the Roman general Titus destroyed Jerusalem killing hundreds of thousands of people in the process. And in like the, the, the corpse-strewn, smoldering ruins of the city, the fires were not quenched. The maggots did not die. Jerusalem had gone to hell again. Much of the time when Jesus was talking about hell, he was talking about a literal hell in this life. I mean, consider this passage. This is from Luke 13. At that moment, some people came up and told them the news. Some Galileans had been in the temple, and Pilate had mixed their blood with that of the sacrifices. Do you suppose, said Jesus, that those Galileans suffered such things because they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? No, let me tell you, unless you repent, you will all be destroyed in the same way. And what about those 18 who were killed when the tower in Siloam collapsed on top of them? Do you imagine they were more blameworthy than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, let me tell you, unless you repent, you will all be destroyed in the same way. Now, we're used to taking verses like this and saying, see, Jesus says, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to go to hell. But this is more hellish imagery we're used to conflating with some kind of afterlife hell when Jesus is actually talking about an avoidable threat in this life. In effect, I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, unless you people rethink everything, unless you embrace the way of peace that I'm teaching and abandon your insistence on violent revolution against Rome, you're all going to die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And listen, that's exactly what did happen. 40 years later, a city was completely torn apart. The Romans started their siege warfare with catapult balls. They were 100-pound hailstones they would put into catapults and launch it at Jerusalem, creating a mess and rubble in its wake. And then when they finally went into Jerusalem, more than half a million people were killed by Roman swords. 
Jerusalem had become hell, a horrid, real, literal hell, and Jesus was warning them about that. And so if you want to find hell, embrace violence because it's the quick road there. If you want a glimpse of what hell looks like, War and violence are what it looks like. And listen, you can watch it on CNN today in the footage of Gaza being bombed, in the glimpses we have of eastern Ukraine as they fight against Russia. War is hell. And those that embrace it are on the quick road to hell themselves. You know, this week I was scrolling through Instagram. I really should, bad habit, you know. But going through videos, there's, you know, a funny dog and, you know, somebody falls over funny. But then in my, my, my feed came up a, a, a video of Mark Driscoll. And in it, he was explaining why Israel is right to go in and completely crush the Palestinian nation. In fact, he called certain nations demonic and that it was God's will for Israel to go in and destroy it. And all I kept thinking was, how in the hell does this guy still have a mic? And where does he get off saying this? That is so incredibly arrogant and anti-Christ. No, war is hell. Jesus never embraced violence. And it's not just people on the sort of conservative right. It's people on the left. I've never been more disillusioned with the extreme left than I have been in their reaction, at least initially, to the attacks on Israel by Hamas. I, I recall seeing someone say, what did you think liberation and decolonization was going to look like? As if rape and murder are simply the price you pay for decolonization and liberation. And all I kept thinking is, is that is complete bullshit. Rape and cold-blooded murder are never justified, especially as a Jesus path person. And here's the deal. I'm not Mennonite. I don't come from the Anabaptist tradition. When it comes to pacifism, the best that I can muster is to say I'm a theoretical pacifist. And I'll tell you why, because I'm well aware that I have the capacity within me to kill. I've thought about killing my dog several times, but I know that if somebody did something to my family or those that I love, I would be so tempted towards violence. And so I'm a pacifist on paper, you could say. But while I'm not sure of my own proclivities under the worst of scenarios, what I am certain of is this. Jesus had no time for violence because he knew it was the road to hell. War and violence are how you find yourself in hell. That's why Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And some people might say, ah, but what about just war? You know, I get tired of, of, of hearing this because just war was a, an idea developed in the fourth century. And do you know how wars were typically fought then? You get your best fighting men, we'll get ours, we'll go to some field on the outskirts of town and bludgeon each other to death. But here's the thing, war is not fought that way today. The way contemporary wars play out is, is, is all embedded within cities and innocent civilians. And so I'm convinced that today there's no such thing as a just war. Violence only begets violence. And Jesus knew this all so well. We've lost the heart of what Jesus was about when he went to the cross. It was a complete refusal and denial of violence and war because God would rather die than hurt an enemy. And we have to reclaim this as Christians. Just war is impossible. And even if it were, Jesus says that is not 
the way of the Jesus path. So you want to find your way to hell? Path one, be wicked. Path two, embrace violence and war. But there's a third path as well, and it's the path of economic self-interest. You know, Jesus' chief aim was to announce and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And listen, kingdom of God, very foreign to our ears. But really, it was Jesus' way of saying, uh, God is bringing about a new government for humanity. The world is going to be ruled in a new way, in God's way. But Jesus frequently reminds us that entering this kingdom is not an easy road to walk. It's a narrow path, Jesus says. Few venture to take it because as humans, Jesus knew we are deeply addicted, you could say, to self-interest. And Jesus knew that one of the greatest obstacles for people entering the kingdom of God is economic self-interest. I mean, this is why Jesus famously said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus put it even more bluntly. He said, nobody can serve two masters. You'll end up hating the one and loving the other or going along with the first and despising the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Luke tells us in his account that when Jesus made these statements that the Pharisees who loved money, apparently, they mocked Jesus. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and mocked Jesus, Luke tells us. And so in response to their mockery, Jesus decides to tell them a story. It's a story about a rich man and Lazarus. This is it in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, that's key, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They got Moses, and they have the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. That is quite the tale. And there's a lot happening here. Now, first of all, the parable of the rich man Lazarus conferring in hell in Hades, more appropriately, the realm of the dead. This was an existing Jewish folktale, apparently, so I've heard there were seven versions of it in rabbinic writings. So this is not a Jesus original story, rather it's an adaptation. He puts his own twists on the story with some additions. Now the first key addition is that he adds in the part about the brothers, and even a dead man coming back to life not being able to convince those who are rich and cynical. But there's other subtle twists as well. 
He gives Lazarus a name. He's named Lazarus. He leaves the prominent rich man nameless. And of course, Jesus is certainly hinting at a reversal of fortunes here, but in the story, eventually both men die and they enter hell, or more accurately, they both enter Hades, the realm of the dead. And this is where things for me are interesting. We aren't given a picture here of heaven and hell. They're both in Hades, but for Lazarus, the realm of death is a place of comfort. For the rich man, the realm of death is a place of torment. Fascinating. They're both in death in Hades, but they experience it very differently. Why? Why might their experiences be so vastly different? Well, notice this about the rich man. He hasn't changed his posture from one before he was dead. His after-death posture towards Lazarus hasn't changed how he saw Lazarus before death. I mean, get this. When you read the story, he goes to Abraham. He doesn't even care to speak with Lazarus. He's more interested in talking to the bigwig, Father Abraham. He's still, it would seem, only concerned with people of influence and power and privilege. And second, he still sees Lazarus as an inferior being. He sees him as nothing more than a servant. Notice what he says. Hey, Abraham, send that Lazarus to fetch me some water. Send him on an errand to my brothers. What we have here is the portrait of a rich man who failed to learn to love before death and has still not learned to love after death. And in this state of affairs, the experience of death for him is one of torment. It's hellish, while Lazarus is one of comfort. What is this story? What is it? Is it a reconnaissance report? Is this a firsthand account of, of one man's torment in the afterlife? I, I certainly don't think that, and I don't think arguing about whether this story is literal or historical is in any way helpful. It entirely misses the point. This story is a cautionary tale on two levels. The first is this, for we smug Christians who think that just because we said a sinner's prayer that we don't need to worry about any of this, we might want to hold the phone. Because if this, this is a peek into the afterlife, it seems to have nothing to do with whether or not the rich man or Lazarus said a certain prayer. There's no indication of that. On the second hand, for we smug cynics who might think that we have no time for ideas about hell or the afterlife because those are silly, well, we might want to pause here as well. There are consequences for our decisions here on earth that make sense and, and follow through into eternity. And, and both postures, thinking, oh, I don't need to worry about this because I said a prayer, I'm a Christian, or, or I have no patience, or I, you know, any tolerance to hear about hell, both of those postures are a mockery of Jesus. There's no indication in the story that Lazarus is sent to heaven and the rich man sent to hell. Rather, they both arrive in Hades, but their experience is very different, and that's worth all of us paying attention to. Because if you want to know how to find the road to hell, well, follow the path set by the rich man because it'll take you there. If you want to find the path to hell, then walk the path of economic self-interest. Close your doors. Forget the needs of others. Focus on you and your family and your well-being alone. Make sure all your money, all your time, all your energy gets spent on you and yours alone. Do that like the rich man 
and you're walking the path to hell. We can't ignore the needs on our doorsteps. This isn't the needs overseas or the needs far away. What Lazarus, or sorry, what the rich man ignored was the needs right on his doorstep. And Jesus says, you can't do that while living a life of comfort and expect that it's not going to do something to your soul. You're walking a path to hell. You could say the path to hell is Trinitarian. There are three ways to get there, but ultimately one. First path to hell is be wicked. Second path is to embrace violence and war. Third path is to only care about our, only, our own economic self-interest. But what all three of these paths amount to is really one true path to hell, and that is the failure to learn to love. An inability to love, a refusal to love, a refusal to surrender to the author of love. Walk that path, and you may find yourself in the torment of being engulfed in the flames of love. But do you end it there? Is that it? Or is there hope even in that? You know, St. Anthony said this of God, God is good, and God only bestows blessings and never does harm. Thus, to say that God turns away from the wicked is like saying that the sun hides itself from the blind. God is love. God has a single disposition towards each and every one of us, even those of us who are wicked or sold on violence or greedy. And that disposition is a fire of unquenchable love. And I get it, that fire might feel like torment to some. But let us remember, God as fire is very different than how we typically think of fire. In wildfire terms, John Vallant reminds us, fire has no heart, no soul, and no concern for the damage it does or who it harms. Its focus is solely on sustaining itself and spreading as broadly as possible, wherever possible. Fire, as we know it, is concerned with only consuming and destroying Ah, but there's a very different kind of fire. The fire of God's unquenchable love is not focused on consuming and destroying. There's a fire, the fire of God's unquenchable love. It looks radically different. Moses encountered this fire in the wilderness. It is one of the pivotal moments in all of Scripture. God is revealed to Moses. In the flames of this burning bush stands a face. And Moses encounters this god of fire in a burning bush. Now, you could say in firefighting terms that this bush is on fire. It is fully involved. If you've ever seen a video of a tree candling in a, in a, in a forest fire, you'll know what I mean. It is fully involved. It's fully engulfed in flames. It's saturated with fire, every branch, every stem, every leaf. But these flames are unlike any fire that's ever been seen in creation. The bush is burning, but it remains unharmed. The leaves are not turning black. The branches are not withering. There's no destruction happening here. This is the destiny, I would say, for all of us. And being engulfed in the unquenchable fire of God's love might be torment to some, but it's never a torment that seeks to destroy or harm or consume there is a hell, and there are ways to get there, but even then there is hope. Consider this, in 1 Peter 4, he writes that 
they, the wicked, will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is clear. We will all give an account of our lives. It goes on. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. You know, these verses here have sparked a long-standing tradition. It's almost disappeared in evangelical cir circles, but it's affirmed in the Apostles' Creed that in dying, Jesus descends into Hades, the realm of the dead. And in Hades, Jesus announces good news. Death is not now the end. You could picture Jesus descending into Hades, meeting the rich man there and saying, good news, you no longer have to live in the torment of economic greed and self-interest. You can choose now, rich man, the path of love. You can choose to surrender to me, the creator, the author, the path of love. The gates of Hades and hell have been destroyed. The gates are open. All you have to do now is choose to love. And here's the thing. A lot of preachers, pastors, they like to stop here because many of us are a little unsure of what this means. We're afraid to ponder that maybe hell might be empty. I don't know. We think to ourselves, maybe some people are so beyond hope that they will choose to remain in hell for eternity. Maybe some people are so beyond the pale that even with the gates of hell left wide open for them, they will choose to remain in the torment of the hell that they have chosen, the path they have walked themselves. But here's the thing, I'm not one of those preachers. Some people beyond hope? Some people beyond the pale? What kind of God do we believe in? I believe in a God who conquered death in Jesus' resurrection, and you're going to leave the door open that some people are beyond hope? I believe God is an unquenchable fire of love, and I believe that fire will never stop burning before every lost sheep and every prodigal child comes home. I, like David Bentley Hart, believe that all of creation will one day, on the last day, be as the burning bush, illuminated, a fire, but not consumed by the glory of God in the sun. There are paths to hell that we can choose to walk. Wickedness, war, economic self-interest. The inability to love in all of its forms will certainly take us to hell. Refuse to surrender to the creator, author, sustainer of love. Refuse to do that, and you're walking the path to hell. But death is never the end of the story. There's hope even then. And why? Because Jesus descends into the realm of the dead and leaves the gates of Hades and hell wide open. The fires of hell are the fires of God's unquenchable love. And in this fire, we are fully consumed but never harmed. In this fire, we are only ever stripped of what keeps us from love. I believe, like the great preacher George MacDonald, this line, he says this, All the snow that fell on the black winding river vanished, as death and hell shall one day vanish in the fire of God.